0: Pray one more time. God, we're grateful once again on this Lord's Day, which is an opportunity this Mother's Day, God, to, to honor our mothers and ultimately, God, to point the attention back to you. But we're grateful that we get to have a, a particular text and particular subject before us. For this sermon, and I pray, Lord, that it would be encouraging to our moms, but not only to our moms, but to everyone who you've brought here today as we look into the truth of your word and, and have it speak to us, God, in, in, in the purposes that, that you wanted to accomplish in each individual heart who is here listening, was who, who is listening on the live stream and and so collectively as a church, Lord, that, that we would continue to grow by your word and be sanctified. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, in God's sovereignty, um, we had a wonderful time in Sunday school class, and part of a portion of our time, uh John Calvin was brought up and just very interestingly, I'm, I'm actually going to quote him a couple times uh, in today's sermon. As we're talking about the sovereignty of God, uh, I want to start off with a different Calvin who was actually named for John Calvin. And this is Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip and good old precocious Calvin, right? Well, one one strip from a few years ago uh, showed that he was standing by his mother's bed and he says to her, hey, mom, wake up. I made you a Mother's Day card. His mother, very pleasantly surprised, she starts reading it out loud. I was going to buy a card with hearts of pink and red. But then I thought I'd rather spend the money instead. It's awfully hard to buy things when one's allowance is so small. So I guess you're plenty lucky I got you anything at all. Happy Mother's Day. There, I've said it. Now I'm done. So how about getting out of bed and fixing breakfast for your son? Certainly, it's not easy to be a mom. A mother was talking to an old friend from college, and she said, I remember before I was married that I had three theories about raising children. Now I have three children and no theories. Another Christian mom remarked, Parenting is really difficult, and if it doesn't bring you to your knees by the end of the day, you're doing it wrong. Ain't that the truth? Today, for this special Mother's Day sermon, I want us to look together at a woman in the Bible who is passionate about motherhood. We actually already read about her in 1 Samuel chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. But before you turn there, I do want to turn your mind's attention for a moment to the book of Judges. And in the Hebrew Bible, 1 Samuel follows immediately after Judges. In our English Bibles, it's Ruth after Judges. And the story of Ruth actually happens during the time of the Judges, but 1 Samuel is right after. So the situation is dark, it's bleak. Anyone who's read the book of Judges is aware of that. In the nation of Israel, it's in a mess, a fine mess, okay, terrible mess, torn apart due to the continual turning away of the people from God. There's a lack of spiritual leadership. There's perpetual and increasing perversity in the land. So God sends an outside nation to attack Israel, to kind of chastise them. The people eventually call out to God for help, and they repent. So what does God do? He raises up a judge to deliver them. And so they praise God, and that goes on for a short time. But then what happens again? They forget about God because they're being blessed, and God's people don't do good with blessing. And so they turn away from him again, false idol worship and all the rest. And so God rebukes them. He sends a nation to, to attack them and oppress them. They cry out, and the cycle goes on and on. So this recurring pattern of apostasy and oppression and distress and deliverance, this is part of the nation of Israel's history for 350 years. It's from the death of Joshua, okay, because before Judges is Joshua, right? So the death of Joshua up until the time of 1 Samuel, span of 350 years. And the last verse of Judges explains that dark situation. And it says... In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the context of 1 Samuel. Sometimes we, like, separate those things and just, okay, this is the time. So one might argue that our situation today in America is similarly perverse and twisted as it was in the time of 1 Samuel, the time of Judges. And uh, just a brief Kind of example as we get into introduce our our text and there's a, a political commentator named Dave Rubin. Anybody he's famous for the Rubin report. Um, anyway, him and his partner, okay, his homosexual married couple, they announced in recent months that they are expecting twins. Expecting twins, and I keep having to use those air quotes. Okay, but I think you know what I'm saying. So they're going to be parents via in vitro fertilization and surrogacy. And for your information, Dave Rubin, formerly, as of five years ago, formerly a progressive liberal atheist, but he says after he started to recognize in the past five years or so the hypocrisy and the lies and the evil of the left, especially regarding the wrongness of woke philosophies and all that stuff, he has now become a conservative agnostic. And this is noteworthy, some might say even admirable, okay, someone converting, so to speak, from progressive radical liberalism to conservatism. So his, his views now, his positions now on different social issues line up more on the conservative side, and he's been welcomed into the party, okay, which, which is fine. But listen... As he and his husband made this announcement of becoming parents together, some controversy arose because some conservative media outlets, such as PragerU and The Blaze, both of which there are many things to appreciate about, uh, they responded on social media with public congratulations. But there was a minority of conservatives, mostly Christians, who would not congratulate publicly Dave Rubin and his partner upon hearing this news. And why is that? Well, there's actually a host of reasons okay, involving just in vitro fertilization and surrogacy and all the kind of stuff that's involved with that, as well as children growing up in an immoral environment of homosexuality Major concerns and dangers I'm not going to take time to get into this morning. But what I am highlighting here is simply the importance and necessity of motherhood. In God's design, the ideal model for children to flourish, what is most ideal for their well-being is to have a father and a mother. And that's not the case with every single child, of course. There are exceptions, but many decades of social science research and studies after studies have affirmed what the Bible says. Hey, what is best for children and for society is the nuclear family. Father, mother, children. Children have a right to a mom and a dad. Hey, we do rightly lament the, the the tragic damage to children growing up in fatherless homes. Fatherless homes are becoming more and more common in today's society, especially in the inner cities, as we know. The destructive results of fatherlessness on the children and on society are sadly obvious and evident. But what about a society that accepts, even congratulates when two dads are raising up children with no mom? And this is where the culture is heading, dear church family. It's not a left-right thing not a liberal conservative thing a Christless conservatives are accepting of homosexual marriage homosexual parenting even starting to celebrate all this as someone mentioned in Sunday school class today Romans 1 being played out in our time a Christless conservatives but faith Bible church family we are not Christless conservatives are we no we're not we don't we don't plant that flag, we don't stand on that position. We are for Christ. We are for Christ's gospel. And thus we are for biblical morality. And we believe, according to the Bible, that motherhood is God's design. It's in fact His good and glorious design. It's for the flourishing in His wisdom of individuals, of parents, of children and of society as a whole. Today's culture is such that everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes, in their own wisdom, in their own thinking. Just like the time of 1 Samuel, spiritual decay and darkness is rampant. So now we, we come to 1 Samuel, and we're introduced to Hannah. Hannah, this, this woman who, who stands out as a, a Godward lady, and who will be the mother of the last judge of Israel, Samuel. And she's a woman who understands the preciousness of motherhood. And certainly she's very passionate about motherhood. And so, from First Samuel chapters 1 and 2, I want to highlight, I want to highlight, just highlight, we're just going to touch on things this morning. As best we can, three traits of a Godward woman who is passionate about motherhood. Our title is A Model of Passionate Motherhood. So I'm not going to read 1 Samuel 1 again, but when we get to chapter 2, I'll, depending on time, we might read those 10 verses again. But we've already read it. We've already read it um, earlier. And so in verses 1 through 8, as we quickly set the scene here, we, we saw Elkanah. Elkanah, this man with two wives, polygamy. God doesn't condone that. Okay? It is against his law, and there's always problems. There's always problems when you read the Old Testament. It's not like God is approving of this. Okay? There's always problems that come with going against God's ways. So he has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah, and strife is abound. One wife, Peninnah, has children by Elkanah. Sons and daughters. The other is more loved by him, Hannah. So Panina would rub the salt in the wound of of Hannah's barren womb. Okay, the, the curse of that in that time is, is um just that that's what it that's what it felt like, that's what it was considered as a, a curse from God to, to not have children. And so Panina, the wife with the children, she's provoking her, mocking Hannah's barrenness. You can imagine the insult and hurt caused by this already distressing situation. And verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, is no help. Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Hey, this is a uh, husbands, an example of something not to say to your distressed wife. But that leads us into our first point here. Three traits, the first trait of a Godward woman who's passionate about motherhood. She pours out her desires to God, trusting Him. This is in your, your bulletin inside. And verse 10 says that she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she was bitter of soul, greatly distressed. One might say she was, she was vexed, terribly vexed. And she wept bitterly. Okay, many tears were shed. Literally weeping, she wept. Hey, okay, sobbing. King James says she wept sore. I'm sure some of you have experienced this kind of, this kind of grief, this kind of deep sorrow. Maybe some of us just overwhelming sadness and going to the Lord with it. First Peter five says, casting all your anxiety on Him because he cares for you. So she's praying and pouring out her tears and her soul to God. She addresses him in her prayer verse 11 as the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. Actually verse 3 is it the first time that that phrase is found in the Old Testament? Yahweh of hosts, this self-existent memorial name of God, I am of hosts. Okay, basically it means God of all the heavenly armies. All powerful God, Lord Almighty, take heed to me, lowly Hannah. And by the way, in the uh, just the, the outline kind of statement there, I use the word God word. Okay, three traits of a God word woman, right? Because of her obvious closeness with God. Okay, notice virtually every time Hannah speaks in chapters one and two, she mentions Yahweh God. It's it's quite just real quick. Verse eleven, she calls him O Lord of hosts. And at the end, in verse 11, I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life. Verse 15, Hannah replied at the end. She said, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Verse 20, it came about in due time Hannah conceived. She gave birth to a son. She named Samuel, saying, because I've asked him of the Lord. Verse 20. i oh, sorry, that was verse 20. Verse 22. She says, I will not go up until the child is weaned, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Verse 26, 27, 28, she mentions Yahweh every single time, almost every time she, she's, she's recorded as speaking. And chapter 2, um, just, you know, sometimes you, you're praying with people and, and maybe they're a little nervous or, or they're, they're, um, they're young in the faith and just their, their prayers are, oh, Lord, and this and this, Lord, and like every third word is Lord, 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 right? Um, Hannah, it's not exactly like that, but she's praying. Verse 1, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Verse 2, there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no uh, any rock like our God. Verse 3, for the Lord is God of knowledge. So it it goes on and on. So she is a Godward, Godward woman. And as such, as such, a woman whose heart is set on God, who has a godly bent, who loves God, she pours out her desires to him. Verse 11, she lets him know how much she's hurting, her anguish overflowing with tears, and he, she asked him to remember her. And I believe that her desire for a son in that request is, is a humble and holy desire. Her words here are not demanding and self-serving, but rather lowly and for God. See, so look at that. She vows that upon receiving a son from God, verse 11, that she will dedicate him to God. It says at the, at the end of the, the prayer, and a razor shall never come on his head. This refers to the Nazarite vow, a special vow which some people took. It's explained in detail in Numbers chapter 6. The requirements of a a Nazarite, Nazir is that Hebrew word it means to be separated or consecrated, It included abstaining from wine, keeping one's hair unshaved, and and staying away from dead bodies. Quick footnote, by the way, Jesus was not a Nazarite. He's sometimes called Jesus the Nazarene. Why is that? Because he grew up, he's from the town of Nazareth. But he himself was not a Nazarite. Some people get confused about that. Samson in the Old Testament, along with Samuel here, along with John the Baptist in the New Testament, were actually Nazarites who had taken that vow. But back to First Samuel here. Hannah pours out her praise to God. She promises to dedicate her son to him. She's passionate about motherhood. And goes to God with that desire. So verses 12 to 14, which I read earlier, Eli the priest, his response to this despairing woman praying in the temple, okay, which is actually the tabernacle. She is distraught. Maybe her voice has given out, or she's just continuing in prayer, really, really fervently, but, but silently. Okay? God does hear our hearts, folks. But Eli thinks she's drunk. Maybe that was a, a regular occurrence in the in the house of the Lord back in those days. Once again, First Samuel, Judges. Hey, this is a time of much perversion and darkness. Maybe women were showing up drunk even there regularly. And you think, just those really, really immoral things that were happening, even in the tabernacle, even by Eli the priest's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Chapter 2, verse 22, sleeping with women who were dedicated to serving at the tabernacle. Okay, utter immorality and perversion going on. So anyway, Eli apparently hasn't seen too many people like Hannah lately. Assume she's drunk, and he rebukes her, right? Verse 14, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But verses 15 through 18, Hannah replies with such grace, explaining she's not drunk at all, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. I've just been going to God laying out all my troubles, all my concerns and desires out to him. I feel like I've, I've mentioned this today. Psalm thirty-four, nineteen, right? Many multiplied are the afflictions of the righteous, but God delivers him out of all of them, out of all of them. After Eli answers her with a now-informed benediction, after her explanation, she again humbly, thankfully replies, and she's no longer stricken with sadness. But she goes, she eats, she receives Eli's words, and trusting God to answer as he will. And this, this Godward woman pours out her soul, desires herself to God, and now she trusts him, however he answers. And she's fervent, she's passionate for motherhood, and she lets God know it. She also makes it known to God that motherhood is not... It's not all about her. This is not all about her. It's for him. It's for him. Verses 19 and 20, we see that God answers with a yes. Okay. And before we get there, just as a transition, um, we do know that God does not always answer yes. Okay? Sometimes the answer is wait. Sometimes the answer is no. And this is for various reasons. Okay? Whether it's, it's a request for motherhood or fatherhood, or for a spouse, or for any host of very important just things in, in, in life. Though God might not grant you a particular request, He might not say to it, uh, yes to it, you can be assured of this. Okay? You will receive God's provision in some way. You will receive God's provision in some way. Be encouraged by Matthew seven, eleven, Jesus speaking. He says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? God, your loving, knowing, Heavenly Father, will give what is good. Actually, no, he will give what is best for your soul's good. And and he will even withhold what is what is not so good for your soul? Romans eight thirty two says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He goes from the greater to the lesser, right? So everything that's good for our souls, that will help us conform to the image of Christ, which is our soul's best, God will not withhold, and God will give. So Psalm 37, verse 4, says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And Hannah is a good example of this. She found her comfort in going to God. She rested in Him. Verses 19 and 20 tells us God does say yes. He grants her a son. And look what she says in verse 20. And she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. The name Samuel means asked of God or or heard by God. And in this case, I would say it, it, it was both. Samuel was asked of God and heard by God through Hannah's passionate pleas to him. And in God's providential plan and purposes, he says yes. He brings Samuel into the world. And God has a big plan here, right? So he knows what he's doing, even in the darkest of days. We can be encouraged by that today. Let's look at the second trait of a Godward woman who is passionate about motherhood. This is verses 21 to 28. She devotes her children to God, entrusting them to Him. We've already glimpsed this in the, the first point in her prayer and oath that she makes to give her son to God. But what happens next? Verses 21 to 24. Well, as Elkanah, her husband, is about to go make sacrifices to the Lord, Hannah does not go. She waits. And she wants to wait until she has weaned little Samuel. And in the Near East times, this could take three plus years or so, Elkanah cautiously consents to her. He says, only may the Lord confirm his word. He goes with it, trusting that Hannah's wish is aligned with God's will. So verse 24 tells us that as soon as Samuel was weaned, Hannah did take him to the tabernacle. Along with the sacrifices she brought, Although the child was young. Although the child was young. So it was time. It was time for Hannah to fulfill that holy and humble vow that she made to the Lord to dedicate Samuel to God's service. The question is, Will she go all the way and do it? And she's on her way. She's got Samuel. She's got the ephah of flowers. She's got the three-year-old bull. She's got the jug of wine. Will she do it? Verse 25, yes. She brings Samuel to Eli the priest. She reminds him of who she is. Remember that lady you rebuked a long time ago? You thought she was drunk and she actually really wasn't? She didn't actually mention that, but she says respectfully, godly. Right? It was me praying to the Lord and I prayed for a boy and here he is. God said yes to me, look here. Verse 28. She says, I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. So Hannah has spent this last three-plus years nursing and nurturing her precious son. What an irreplaceable role she has played in nourishing him physically, mentally, emotionally, as only a mother can do. This moment could not have been easy for her, despite that solemn vow that she made to God before. But her actions show that her prayers were genuine. Her desires for a son were holy. She did not only dedicate herself to her child, okay, passionate about motherhood, but she dedicated her child to God. She's equally passionate about that. Undoubtedly, it took some very specific preparation and prayers for Hannah to be ready to, to give over her son, Samuel. Samuel. Maybe, as one woman who was teaching about Hannah remarked, which, by the way, is something that I as a man uh, would never have thought of, maybe, just maybe, it went something like this. Quote, every time she felt baby Samuel kicking in her stomach, every time he moved right under her heart, every jab in her ribs, she was reminded to pray, Yes, Lord, he is yours. Yes, Lord, he is yours. End quote. Hannah's words to Eli reflect her godly faith, her grace. She gratefully rehearsed God's gift of Samuel and then places that precious gift at the feet of the priest to be used fully at God's disposal. The New Jerusalem Bible translates this as, he is made over to Yahweh. He's made over, he's given over. Ultimately, Hannah knows that everything belongs to God, right? Like Psalm 24 says, Psalm of David, The earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. All belongs to God. There's nothing really that we can lend to God or give to God that he doesn't already own. But Hannah's desire from the beginning was to devote this child to the Lord, to Yahweh, for his service, to belong to him fully. She entrusted her treasured son to God. And then verse 28 says this, and he worshiped the Lord there. I believe that he at the end of this verse refers to little Samuel, maybe three, four years old. How is it that such a young boy has learned to worship God? Well, Hannah was a Godward woman who was passionate about motherhood. Passionate about motherhood. And as part of devoting him to the Lord in preparation for this day to give him over, she surely took God's word seriously and was faithful To teach his ways. Deuteronomy 6. It says, well, I could read verses 1 through 9, but verses 7 and 8 says, You shall teach them, the children, diligently. No, you shall teach them the word of God diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, bring up your children, as it says in the New Testament, in the fear and instruction of the Lord. And littles, littles, hey, they can learn about worship. And I'm reminded of the story of our own children when, before Joseph was born, and we were at the beach, and packing our things up and walking across the beach to the car. And um, Philip and Phoebe are are carrying stuff, and Philip is maybe six, and Phoebe's three or seven and four, or something like that. And some young college-looking kids are are playing volleyball and listening really loud to um, that old rap song, California Love, California, you know. And uh, it's got that beat, and and Philip is uh, kind of, you know, just striding to the beat as he's walking along there. And Phoebe's walking behind them. She says, "Opa, big brother, I don't think they're worshiping God. And so she, he, got a, he got a rebuke from her little sister, from his little sister. But um, littles can learn about worship of God. And Hannah, she was certainly a passionate mother who had committed and was teaching her son Samuel, as faithful Christian mothers and fathers do. Later on in church history, so this is where John Calvin comes in, he had a um, his wife, Whose name was Idolette or Idolette. She died after a long illness in 1549. and He was uh, 40 years old or so. And he wrote about his wife in a letter to a friend after she passed away. Quote, from her, my wife, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. She was never troublesome to me throughout the entire course of her illness. She was more anxious about her children than about herself. And as I feared that those private cares might bother her to no purpose, I took occasion on the third day before her death to tell her that I would not fail in discharging my duty to the children as a father. And responding immediately, she said, I have already committed them to God. And when I said that that was not to prevent me from caring for them, she replied, I know you will not neglect what you know has been committed. To God. End quote. Hey, like like Hannah, John Calvin's wife, Itolette, had entrusted her dear children completely to the Lord. And this leads us to our the last of our traits of a Godward woman who is passionate about motherhood. She pours out her desires to God, trusting him. She devotes her children to God, entrusting them to him. Lastly, she praises God's character and ways, rejoicing in him. And this is where we come to her famous prayer, famous song in chapter 2. And here's an in the moment call right now. I'm not going to read it, all right? But we're going to go through it quickly. Hannah's prayer of praise here is, is, is actually worthy of a, another full length sermon in itself. But for our time today, just note first of all that this prayer is not just a one off. It didn't happen all of a sudden. It didn't come about just just without years of cultivating this kind of heart, this knowledge of God, this kind of love and praise for God. Remember, this is in the context of the time of judges and darkness, spiritual decay, perversion. This is incredibly unique, this woman. And so this amazingly rich prayer, which, by the way, has remarkable parallels to Mary, the mother of Jesus' prayer in Luke chapter 1. Uh, If you study that, you'll see some parallels there. It reveals Hannah's Godward perspective that, yes, she was a woman very passionate about motherhood, but also that that passion came out of her closeness with God. The first thing out of her mouth after giving over young Samuel to Eli is, my heart exalts In the Lord, exalts, rejoices in, takes delight in, gladness in the Lord. Her joyful heart comes from knowing Yahweh. This prayer, and and some have called it a song, can be broken down into three main sections. All right, and we're just going to talk through this uh, as quickly as we can. But the first is is in verses 1 through 3 which is praise to Yahweh for personal and particular deliverance. Praise to Yahweh for personal and particular deliverance. And you'll see as the prayer progresses, it, it expands out into greater circles. But in the first verse, we see Hannah repeatedly use the personal pronouns my and I. So she begins with her own experience and her own acknowledgement of God and his place in her life. He is the source of her joy. My soul exalts in the Lord. And He is the power behind any strength that she has. That next, very next line, my horn is exalted in Yahweh. It's like saying, my power is great in or because of God. He has delivered her from her enemies. And so she speaks, not out of malice. She doesn't speak out of this (laughs) sense of revenge but rather because I rejoice in your salvation, as she says. I rejoice, God, in your salvation. Truly, this is a Godward woman who, as George Mueller memorably stated, has made herself, made her soul happy in the Lord. And she continues in verse 2 by breaking forth with a praise for who God is. She confesses faith in God who is utterly and absolutely unique. He is holy. There's no one like him. No one who compares to him in all the universe. And verse three is a word of admonition, which some consider to be directed towards Panina. Okay, verse three there, she says, Boast no more so very proudly, do not let your arrogance come out of your mouth. Right? Um, but actually those first two verbs in Hebrew are plural, plural. And the your uh, as well. So it would seem to be more of a general warning to, to anyone who is boasting in themselves and uh this might include Panina. In any case, Hannah knows and praises God for his holy character, his power, his omniscience. This is Yahweh who answered her prayers, who delivered her, who brought her relief and rejoicing through that through that agonizing crisis. So the second part in verses 4 through 8 is recognition of Yahweh's sovereign and general help. To the needy. A recognition of Yahweh's sovereign and general help to the needy. It goes from the specific to the more universal. Hannah recognizes that God sovereignly helps the needy as He helped her in her time of distress. And this is, this is characteristic of the way Yahweh rules and works in the world. He helps the needy, the afflicted, the downtrodden. John Calvin again, when he was mourning his wife's death, he wrote to his friend William Farrell in a letter, quote, May the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction and sorrow, which would certainly have overcome me had not he who raises up the prostrate, strengthens the weak and refreshes the weary, stretched forth his hand from heaven to me, end quote. Calvin was saying basically that he would have been crushed under the weight of his sadness at his wife's passing but he knew a god who raises up the prostrate gives strength to the weak and refreshes the weary and in Calvin's grief god showed up and he worked according to his compassionate character this is the way god works so Hannah was bursting forth in song about the kindness of God, that his help towards her reflected, reflected his tendency. That's the way God in his mercy tends toward. So the last part of the prayer is verses 9 through 10, and it's the knowledge of, God, of Yahweh's righteous judgment. Knowledge of Yahweh's righteous judgment. Hey, her song expands into truth for now and a view towards the future. Verse 9, he keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. And this is a wake-up call to anyone who thinks that they're going to survive eternity on their own strength, on the the basis of their own goodness, of their own works. God would call that wicked rebellion, rejection of him, Verse 10, he says, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. That's a loving warning and promise. And you reject Christ and you reject the gospel. You reject the fact, the reality, the truth that Jesus came to save sinners and offers forgiveness by his death on the cross and calling you, in fact, commanding you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and confess him as your personal Lord, which means you're going to do what he says from now on and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and he's the living Savior, and continue to reject him, contend with him that way, you're going to be shattered. He says, against them he will thunder in the heavens. And so in the future, Yahweh, the Lord, will judge the ends of the earth. That's that's what's going to happen. Ultimately, he will judge righteously in heaven and on earth. The wicked are going to be dealt with. Sinners who don't truly believe, are going to be rejected. And God himself will be exalted in power. So Hannah has these insights due to her personal relationship with God and her understanding and knowledge of him, it just shines through. I, I commend this prayer, this, this section of scripture to you for deeper delving and studying. But her, her relationship and knowledge of God it just shines forth uh, in this this prayer song, this beautiful song of praise to Him. So I want to end with um, just a, a few points of application as we conclude today. And uh, it was a little over a hundred years ago, 1914, actually, that President Woodrow Wilson, via an act of Congress, proclaimed the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day, and we are happy to honor and celebrate our mothers, the mothers of our families here in our Faith Bible Church family, and our, our mothers who are not with us today. We're so thankful to God for them. And as we do that, we want to take some applications, not just for mothers, but for everyone. So just four brief thoughts as we conclude today. Number one, not all women are called to be mothers. Hey, I want to make sure that we're understanding that Though motherhood is a glorious, I didn't say necessarily glamorous, but it is a glorious, which is even better, calling, it's not to say that every single woman is called to motherhood. In today's anti-family age, we do need to instruct that motherhood is a holy, humble, good, righteous, blessed desire. Some would even argue that motherhood is God's highest calling, for women in general, but we understand that God is sovereign over all of this, and he has a glorious purpose for his beloved daughters who are not mothers, not married, to honor and magnify his name as well. So let us be clear in our understanding about that. Number two, all women, Christian women, can be spiritual mothers. And as, as you live on mission for the gospel, by sowing the seed of the good news, you can have the joy of having spiritual children. And Titus 2 calls Christian women to discipleship. The older, more spiritually mature women called to instruct, to encourage, to be an example, to teach younger women in the faith, in the church body, God's special role and design for women. It's so incredibly important. And what? A high calling and glorious role, that is. Number three, to our dear mothers, be reminded of your vital role and mission as well, which is to give your children over to God for a life devoted to service to Him. There's no greater purpose, no higher honor than to have your children surrender their lives in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means we as parents are disciple-makers as well, first and foremost, to our children. In Hannah's case, her son Samuel had a a special appointment from God, and this is part of the bigger picture. If we're preaching um, in a different context, it would be all brought out. But he was to serve God as a, a judge, a priest, a prophet, and a kingmaker. But whatever it is that our children are called to do, May they know that it is to be in complete service and submission to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a high calling, people. Lastly, let us all be reminded that we need to be growing in our relationship and our walks with God. And we all need to be doing that. If we want our children to know and love God, if we want our spiritual children, if we want our church family to grow and love Jesus with all their heart, okay, He needs to be real in our own lives first. Okay, we need to be a living testimony of, of, of who God is. We need to adorn the gospel and doctrine of Christ. And so uh, this speaks to all of us today um, as we consider... This Godward woman, Hannah, who had so clearly and evidently humbled herself and cultivated that, that intimacy, intimacy with, with God, that knowledge of God, that close relationship with Him. We too, all of us, as we bring this to a, a point of application, we need to be walking closely with God, cultivating our relationship with Him, and being that, that testimony that, that can speak forth to our children, our spiritual children, our physical children, to the, the power and glory and grace and love and truth of all that God is. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we got to look into, even on a, a surface level, Lord, these first couple chapters in this precious text in First Samuel and to to highlight, just to bring some some things out, uh, some traits, some characteristics of of this woman who you raised, named Hannah. Thank you, God, for her example. Thank you that we can take some lessons from it, um, particularly for our our mothers here, but also, Lord, as we just said, for for all of us. We can we can be edified and, and gain from these truths. And thank you and praise you for the, the high calling of motherhood and understand uh, just the different circumstances with that, Lord. Thank you uh, for, for this time. Thank you for our all the dear, precious people that you've brought to to hear your word today. And I pray, Lord, that this truth has been um, encouraging for our souls and um, has called us to, to look to you once again. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.